This morning we pick back up with our sermon series in the letter of Philippians, which we left off of in early November for some seasonal preaching on the Lord's Supper and other topics. Today, though, we go back to Philippians. Just by reminder, to bring us up to speed for a moment, Philippians is an early Christian letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in a city called Philippi, a Roman colony that is located in what is today the northwest corner of modern Greece, right on the Mediterranean Sea. This city was populated by the military veterans of Rome's wars. It became a colony of Rome in that way, men who had won their status as Roman citizens, who had become Roman citizens through decades of service to the empire, were given land and title and houses in this city of Philippi. So it became, in that way, a kind of Rome away from Rome. Paul, as we read in Acts chapter 16, founded this church in Philippi by means of his own suffering. After preaching the gospel in Philippi for some period of time and winning a small number of converts, the church really took off when Paul and his partner Silas were arrested by the Roman magistrates, accused of breaking Roman custom and law with their preaching, and then stripped and beaten again and again with heavy rods and then thrown into prison. That is when the church really took off in Philippi. For that night in the prison cell, Paul and Silas, though they had been bloodied and bruised and were in chains, joyfully accepted their suffering as something they experienced in communion with Christ. And they, in the prison, were singing hymns and praying to God when an earthquake came. And God delivered them from their chains and then brought before them a Philippian jailer who put his trust in the Lord and he and his whole household were baptized. Once this man of some standing in Philippi, some um, a social connection, uh, became a Christian, the church then began to spread in new ways. But now as Paul writes his letter decades and decades, or years and years later rather, um, he is ironically um, in the present day when he writes this letter to Philippi again in chains. Uh, the church began with Paul in chains in Philippi and now he writes to them in chains. Paul is imprisoned as he writes this letter in Rome. He is awaiting trial before Caesar. He has again uh, been arrested and charged with preaching a new gospel, a new euangelion, a new message of good news that says that someone other than Caesar is actually Lord of all. It is in this um, place in Rome where Paul will almost certainly meet his death by execution uh, from um, Caesar. Paul, as he writes Philippians, is close to the end of his life. He's a mature and experienced follower of Jesus. And although he is in prison, his letter is full of joy and thanksgiving, even as he faces his death. He begins this letter, remember, in chapter 1 by thanking God, thanking God for the Philippians, expressing his confidence that God will continue and complete the work that he has begun in them, that he will actually prepare them completely 
for the final judgment, for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Indeed, Paul tells the Philippians that he is also rejoicing in his own present suffering, his own present imprisonment, because he knows that these sufferings are a participation in the sufferings of Christ. And indeed, he believes that God is making his suffering, like all Christian suffering, fruitful, so that it is actually bringing about the conversion of some in Caesar's own household. The gospel is being planted, as it always is, through the suffering of his people. At the end of the first chapter of his letter, Paul then invites the Philippians into his own story. Paul doesn't believe that he's doing anything unique. He thinks that his life is the life of every Christian. He invites them to see his, their lives as he sees his, exhorting them to live in a manner, Paul says, that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of the euangelion of Christ. He tells them, it has been granted to you. This is a gift, he says, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's great, but also, here's the gift, also suffer for his sake, for the sake of Jesus. Paul is inviting his readers to see their lives in this manner and for us to see our lives in this manner as well. Then in chapter 2, Paul begins to detail what it will mean for the Philippians to live along with him in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He explains that they are called to live in a cruciform way, in a cross-shaped way with one another. Indeed, they are to embrace a common calling to humility. They are to be a, a community of humble people, people who actually consider everyone else more significant than themselves. And that as they do these things, as they live in this Jesus-centered way, following after him with their cross in the way of Christ, they are actually walking with Jesus, who, as Paul says in verses 5 to 11 of that second chapter, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the humiliating death on a cross. And therefore, Paul goes on right before our passage this morning, and he tells his readers, therefore God has exalted his son. Because he was obedient and humbled himself in this way, he raised him from the dead and he bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This great Christ hymn, as it's sometimes referred to in Philippians 2, is right where we left off in early November. And this morning we pick up with Paul's further argument as he builds on what he has just said about Jesus and the Father. We pick up in verses 12 to 16. Remember, as we read these words, Paul has just been emphasizing that on the last day, at the end, every knee will fully bow in obedience and in submission to the Lord Jesus. And so in our passage this morning, what Paul is going to be doing is he's going to be saying, and you are to bring the last day into the present moment. 
For you are to bow the knee and obey and submit to Christ now. Not in a grudging way, not in a way um, that grumbles, but in a way that is in joyful anticipation of the end of all things. Listen now as we read again from God's holy and inerrant word this morning, this time from Philippians 2, verses 12 to 16. This passage is printed on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read along there. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold. It's the most valuable thing in your life. It is sweeter than honey, sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen now. Paul writes and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you've caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. And so grant us now by your Holy Spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest it. That we might more and more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Westminster Larger Catechism teaches us that one of the duties required in the first commandment, which we read this morning, of course, is that we yield all obedience and submission to God with the whole man. That is how the Catechism puts it, that we obey and submit to God completely. That is what is required by the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The larger catechism also states that one of the fundamental actions that Jesus performs as he executes his office as our king and our Lord is that he not only bestows his saving grace on his people, but also that he rewards their obedience to him, that he rewards them as they obey. In addition, our confession of faith states that God is pleased. It gives God pleasure to accept and reward our obedience to him as we offer it in union with the person of his son, even though our obedience is always accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. 
This emphasis on the necessity and indeed the value, the significance of our obedience to God might sound strange in a modern context, but it is absolutely biblical to talk in this way. Perhaps no other figure, in fact, in all of the scriptures emphasized the importance of obedience to God more than Jesus himself. Jesus was constantly talking about obedience and the danger of hypocrisy, the danger of saying, I love God, but I do not keep his law. On the night before his death, our Lord taught his disciples, saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is how you show your love for me, your obedience to me. And in case this wasn't quite clear, Jesus then said to them, again, a few moments later, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. Love for Jesus, as it turns out, is not primarily found in some sort of emotional affection, but actually in submission to his law and his word. And again, he said to them that very night, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Again and again, before Jesus left his disciples to go to the cross, he emphasizes the necessity and significance of their obedience to his commands, which he sees as God's own commands as well. You say, in this way, Jesus is not saying anything new. He's simply reiterating the way that God has always spoken to his people because throughout the Old Testament, love for God is always understood to be intimately connected, fundamentally connected to obedience, to his command. As we heard this morning in the giving of the law, the Lord identifies himself to his people as the one who shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me, and in a parallel statement, who love me and keep my commandments. Modern preachers sometimes seem to want to hesitate to emphasize the necessity, the significance, the centrality of obedience to God. Certainly it's easier simply to talk about God's grace and mercy and love but to fail to speak clearly about the calling of obedience to God in the Christian life is to fail to speak as the scriptures themselves speak. Are you saved by grace alone and not by works? Of course. Yes, friends, amen and amen. But is it also true that if you love your Lord Jesus, you will keep his commandments? Yes. Again, yes, amen and amen. Indeed, as Jesus himself put it very bluntly in John 14, the opposite is also true. And these words of our Lord should ring in our ears. He said, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, does not obey me, in other words. He who does not love me, it's not about some sort of lack of affection for Jesus, or stirring up of the heart, it is a lack of obedience to his word, to his command. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul joins with this great thrust of the scriptures 
and he calls his readers to obedience as well. He writes in verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, referring to when he was with them, when he was planning the church in Acts 16, but now much more in my absence. He's far from them now. He may never see them again. So he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a parallel statement to the call to obedience. To obey is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and unpack, I'm sorry, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, in Paul's logic, this sentence unpacks itself in this way. First, we have to notice that he addresses his readers as my beloved. We shouldn't miss this. Our belovedness is the context for our obedience. Exodus comes before Sinai. The deliverance from slavery comes before the giving of the law. But then Paul is not afraid, as God is not afraid, to call his readers to obedience to God, just as they have always been called. And their obedience will manifest itself in this way. They will work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, even as the people of God feared and trembled at the mountain of Sinai. And lest we understand, misunderstand where the source of this power for our obedience lies, Paul then says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What Paul is saying here is that the obedience that we are to render to God is God's own work in the mystery of the gospel and good news, because it is his Holy Spirit who is dwelling in us and who is enlivening us to keep his commandments. But still this call to obedience stands. And this call to obedience to God is both general and also specific. All of us, of course, are called to obey the commands of God, which are summarized in the Ten Commandments themselves. All of us are called to honor and worship God alone, to offer him only pure worship, to not bear his name in vain in the world around us, to remember and keep holy the Sabbath day, to honor our father and mother, to not kill or to commit sexual immorality or to steal or to lie or to covet. All of us are called to these things and we break these commands at our own peril. But though each of us is called to the same general obedience to Christ and his commandments, our calling to obedience is also always incredibly specific and particular to our own lives. Because God in his providence has placed each one of us in unique places and situations. And so we are called to obey his commandments, to love God, to love our neighbor, to keep the Ten Commandments in the context of our particular marriage with our particular spouse, in our particular job, with our particular boss, our particular co-workers, our particular children, our particular parents, our particular friends, our particular neighbors, right? Actually, the literal one that lives across the street, our particular temptations, our particular sufferings. 
Wherever we are, that is the place where God has put us. That is the place where we are called to obey. That is the place where these things become real, and not simply abstract, but in the details of the place where God has put you. And it is worth noticing that this specific obedience that we render to God in the context of his providence is not in any way just some kind of conformity to an arbitrary moral code. No, our obedience in those places as actually an act of personal submission offered to a specific person. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the one who calls us to obedience in the particulars of our lives. He is, after all, the one to whom Every knee will one day bow. And today, in the specifics of our life, we are to bow the one to him, the one who is our master and our king. In verses 14 to 16, Paul then explains the way that Jesus calls us to obey him. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, that is, on the day of the last judgment, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Obedience to God as it turns out, according to Paul, is not merely some kind of external adherence or conformity to his law, right? It's not just doing the right things. We're also called to full and glad obedience, obedience from the heart, obedience without bitterness or resentment. And that means that we are to obey, as Paul puts it, without grumbling or disputing as though God's law was burdensome when it is not, as our apostle tells us. Paul here is unquestionably alluding to the great sin of Israel after her exodus from Egypt, for it was not long after she received the law that God's people were led into the wilderness, into a place of hunger and difficulty and suffering and confusion, And in that place where God had put them, just as surely as he has put you wherever you are, Israel began to grumble against God. And this complaining against God and against his providence, against his decision to lead them where he had put them, this became Israel's great sin. In many ways, grumbling against God is Israel's paradigmatic sin in the Old Testament, along with idolatry. And in fact, these things are connected, because to grumble and complain and grow discontent and bitter about where God has put us and what he has given us or not given us is to open the door to exchange the true God, the actual living God, who relates to us for a false God, for an idol who will falsely promise to still our discontentment to make things better if only we offer them our allegiance. But notice that Paul does not only warn us against grumbling and disputing 
against God as we are called to obey. He also gives us a promise. He says that as we offer to God our obedience, as we repent of our grumbling, as we keep his law, we will be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that we will shine, Paul says, as lights in the world, as stars in the sky, we might say holding fast to the word of life, who is Christ himself. Beloved, it is so important that we see what Paul holds out for us here. For Paul is saying that as we obey God, that obedience is not in vain. Our obedience is not meaningless. It's not some kind of arbitrary trick that God is playing to see how much we love him. No, our obedience actually is making us beautiful. God is beautifying us through our obedience as we offer it to him. For as we obey, we are actually being made holy. We are being made blameless and innocent in Christ by the Spirit, such that we shine as lights in the world. Friend, in this world, there are so many things that are held out to give us happiness and fulfillment and meaning in our lives, right? Things like marriage and children, things like friends, things like vocational success, things like the honor and praise of others, things like wealth. You know, not like an enormous amount, but, you know, enough not to have to worry so much. Things like a decent-sized house and a good neighborhood, a long life, But, beloved, all of those things, all of those things I named, they're good things, they're fine. They're also fading. They will not fundamentally make you happy. And if you go to them in that way, you will run the risk of missing something fascinating and important. Our Lord Jesus, the happiest and most fulfilled man who ever lived, had none of those things. Not one of them. He never married. He never knew the intimacy of romantic love. He never fathered children. He never had that experience of a child on his knee who he had fathered. He was abandoned by his friends. They turned against him. He was not wealthy. He was poor, in fact, and homeless and had nowhere to lay his head. He wrote no books. He won no awards. And he was the opposite of praised by his peers. He was condemned by them. And he died an ignoble and humiliating death at the very young age of 33. And yet this man lived the best life that has ever been lived, was the happiest and most joyful. This is the man who is our model and our example, as well as our Lord and our master. And so what I think we need, beloved, is a vision for what is good and meaningful in life that includes the experience of Christ. It has to, if it's going to be true. If what we think is meaningful and good in this life, it has to include the experience of Jesus. And so it is going to have to be far bigger than what we're used to. What I'm saying is that I think we need to truly believe that what Paul's saying is here is true. 
that to be made holy is the most significant thing that we can accomplish in this world, that we can become, that we can experience. To be made like unto the image of our Lord. That is the goal. And there are no shortcuts to this, no shortcuts to being blameless and innocent and a child of God. Holiness is a gift given only to those who obey, who embrace their calling to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It is a life's work instead of grumbling and disputing. Who give themselves over to the Spirit who is at work in them so that they become, in the end, a man or a woman who is a child of God, blameless and innocent, holding fast the word of light and shining as a light in this dark world. How about that for an obituary? So-and-so died at the age of 75, and they were a blameless and innocent child of God. They shone like a light in this dark and twisted world. They held fast to the word of life. Beloved, that is what is offered to you. That is the glory of what is offered to you in this life. Holiness. To be made like Jesus. The poet Mary Oliver ends one of her most famous poems With this question, she writes, Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. It's a good question. All of us will spend our years seeking after something that we want to do with our one wild and precious life. We only get one. And it is good to try to say out loud what that thing is. And I hope, friends, that your answer to that question is something like this. I plan, I long, I want with my one wild and precious life to become just as holy as I possibly can in however many years the Lord gives me. I hope that is what you want your life to be like. Because, friend, I tell you on the authority of God's word that to become a man or a woman who has been made holy by the Spirit through decades, right, not weeks or months or even years, decades of humble obedience to the commands of God. That is the most beautiful and most wonderful and most remarkable thing in this world. That is, as Paul says, to be made to shine as a light in the darkness. That is to be set on fire fire by God and burn like a star in the sky. And so may God give us the grace that we need to desire this above all things, that we might be made holy and the grace to embrace all the obedience that is required in the years of our life to be made just as holy as we possibly can. In the name of our Father, and our Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, grant us now the grace to treasure your word in our heart, to trust it, to believe it, to live it out in our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.